Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Today I'm talking about talking with Eowyn Crisfield, who specialises in supporting parents as they raise their children with one or more languages and also helps schools to improve the learning and overall school experience of their multilingual learners, or as we say in the UK, EAL, English as an additional language pupils. Hello again, Owen. Hello. So in part one of our conversation, we discussed how parents can become informed advocates for their bi or multilingual children. One of the key transition points is when children start school. My first question is why does starting school have such an impact on children learning multiple languages? But before we dive into that, please could you just clarify what EAL means and how it is decided? So the term EAL stands for English as an Additional Language. It's used in the UK to designate children who have a parent who speaks another language. Um, And so it's not a measure of English proficiency as schools get that information. It just means this child has a parent who speaks another language. And so it's problematic because when we talk about EAL, we're often talking about children who need support who are learning English, um, where you know, the case for many of those kids is they're, English, they're, you know, they're fluent English speakers already. And so it's really just a data point that indicates to schools, these are children we need to maybe assess, but that not all of those children are actually English language learners. Many of them already speak English. Yes, it's a really not at all homogenous group of children, isn't it? There could be any number of iterations. Absolutely. It's, you know, kids who speak only English can be in that category. I mean, just because you have a parent who speaks another language doesn't mean the parent spoke that language to you. And so you may have a child who's an English monolingual, but designated EAL, all the way through to children who have no English at all. And so it's, it's not a meaningful um, it's not a meaningful designation at all. And I think there was a test podcast last year uh, with Professor Victoria Murphy from Oxford, who's also the chair of NALDIC. And she, she used the term that it's a reckless definition. And I think that that's very much the case, that it, it doesn't give anybody, parents, teachers, children, the information they need to make good educational choices. So why is it that starting school has such a big impact on children who are learning multiple languages then? I think the biggest impact it usually has is that they get less time in the languages that are used at home. And so, you know, if you go from being at home normally with your mother and she's speaking Romanian to you all day and you go to school, then you have somebody speaking English to you all day and you get much less Romanian. So it, it impacts the amount of input the children get, how much of an input impact it has depends on the home situation. So if there are two parents speaking two different languages and the child is now spending eight hours a day at school, each of those parental languages will get less time. So that that's kind of the first and really kind of practical impact is that it it means there's less time in the home languages. Another impact that's kind of a, a, more of a on the soft side is that children at that age, when, once they start school in English, for many of them, the first time they notice that they're different. And it's the first time that many of them notice that other people do things differently. And whether they speak some English or not, it can have an impact on their their motivation and their kind of their effective 
feeling about their own language. And so we do see in monolingual English countries, not only, not only the UK, but elsewhere as well, that children who start school as non-English speakers very quickly start to move away from their home languages because English becomes the high status language. English becomes the language that the, the kids play in and that's valued at school. And so it can impact children's perceptions of themselves and their identity negatively. Yes, yeah, so this might be the time when they start refusing to speak in the home or the minority language then. Absolutely, and that's a really classic um, example of how it happens. And, you know, it will just be your child will say to you one day quietly, Mummy, please don't speak to me in Polish at school. It's embarrassing. And that's, you know, their way of saying, I've noticed we're different and I don't want to be different. So let's just be like everyone else. Um, and so they... They often will start by refusing to speak the minority language in public or at school. Um, and then very often, you know, later primary school and teen years will want to stop using it altogether or will just refuse to speak it back to parents when they use it. So that's what we were talking about in the last episode. This is the passive bilingualism then that they understand Polish, for example, but they're not saying it back. So how can we make children feel like partners in their own language journey so that they are happy and they're comfortable in their multilingual identity? So I think that that's, you know, it, it, there's two parts to that equation. And the, the seminars I do in schools are called Parents as Language Partners. And that's really specifically because I think that with multilingual children, language development needs to be a partnership between the home and the school. And so on the parental side, it's about the conversations you have ongoing with your children about why we continue to use Polish with you and why it's important and what we want for you. But on the school side, it's, it's explicitly valuing the languages of other children so that, you know, this week is Polish week and we're all going to say hello to each other in Polish. And next week is Punjabi week and we're all going to say hello to each other in Punjabi. It's about making the school environment reflect the languages of the children rather than suppress the languages of the children. That's what we call the monolingual habitus. We talk about that a lot in research that even multilingual schools very often have a monolingual habitus where everybody pretends they only speak English. And I really noticed this when we moved um, with our children from the Netherlands to the UK, they were in um, a very, very multilingual school. And when they first started at schools here, they said, you know, like, nobody speaks anything other than English. It's amazing. And then they slowly started to find out, oh, well, so-and-so actually has a Russian mother and speaks Russian. And so-and-so actually has a German father. But it was all kind of hidden hmm. um, rather than being open and celebrated. And kids prefer to have other people not really know. And that, I think, suppresses the child's own desire to continue to develop in that language in a really negative way. And so the school side is embracing and supporting and the parental side is the ongoing discussions of why it's important. Yeah, I'm thinking there's um, a great example in your book of a girl who speaks Russian with her mother and then refuses to keep speaking it because she thinks only she and her mother speak it like it's some kind of secret. That's right, because in, in that example, and that was a family I worked with years ago, the little girl said to me, you know, Russian is a secret language. And I said, well, why is Russian a secret language? And she said, because mommy always speaks Russian to me. And when somebody else walks in the room, she changes to Dutch or English. And so through her childish perception, that meant that Russian is obviously a secret language. And so her mother's choice to try and be, you know, inclusive and use English or Dutch when other people were around led to 
you know, misperceptions on her child's part because she didn't talk about it. And so that's why those conversations are really important about why do we do what we do and why do we do things differently and why is it important for us that you be able to use this language too. You can't just take it as read that your children understand what's going on. Yes, and actually they can be really aware of this. You know, it's not like it's too complicated for them to understand. I think, you know, we should maybe give some more credit to our even really young children that they can be partners in this journey. And I think perhaps that will lay the, maybe that will lay the foundations for, you know, more successful sort of happy multilingualism later. Yeah, and I, parents often ask me, but, oh, you know, we can't start having those conversations with them yet. They're only two. And I said, you start as soon as they're talking, you know, when a little child says to you, oh, Cass, and you say, oh, yeah, that's, that's in daddy's language. Mommy says cheese. You know, those discussions are the beginning of that. What's that in daddy's language? What's it in mommy's language? What does your teacher say? That's the beginning of what we call metalinguistic awareness or awareness about language. And as soon as children start developing that, we start talking about, yeah, that's true. We say it this way, but we can also say it this way. And those, you know, the conversation just kind of grows in depth as the children grow older, but it's never too early to start having those conversations at an age appropriate way. I agree. I have been a bit concerned really about how much training teachers receive about bilingual children or how to educate bilingual children. So what is the situation? How much training do teachers get? Um, most often none. Um, in, and, and this is a, you know, globally an issue. I'm going to speak to the UK context right now, but it's an issue globally. Um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the PGCE system, there's no requirement to learn about language acquisition or bilingual language acquisition. So every PGCE program decides for themselves if they're going to include any of that or not. Very often it's not simply because it's a very packed program already. And so even teachers who are going to be going into schools that are 60, 70, 80% um, designated EAL may not get any training at all on what bilingual language development looks like or what they should be doing to support those kids. And that's, I mean, that's problematic globally as migration rises and, um, you know, people move around more. Schools all over the world are dealing with this with teachers who have little to no expertise. It's compounded in the UK because you can't really study here to be an EAL specialist. Um, there isn't a PGCE for that. And so it means that even the people who are tasked with giving very specific support to the language learner students aren't necessarily properly trained. Wow. So that really is about as bad as it could get then at the moment, given that we, what do we have, 22% of children are designated EAL in the UK or in English primary schools, not the whole of the UK. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's hugely problematic. And and I know it comes up, we talk about it at conferences a lot, it comes up you know, post-PGCE surveys and what would you have liked to learn more about? And everybody says EAL or a lot of people say EAL, but just because it's been marginalized governmentally as a profession and as a specialization, it's just not required. And you know, one year to become a teacher when your PGCE is jam-packed already. And so you're asking, PGCE programs essentially to decide what they're going to sacrifice to put it in and some programs feel that that's worth the sacrifice and some don't. Um, I would argue though that all teachers are teachers of language um, even if they're like a maths teacher or a history teacher whether that's deliberate or accidental they have to be teachers of language. I think that I think that phrasing it that way leads us to believe 
that we don't actually need specialists because all teachers are language teachers anyway. I think all teachers are, are language models. All English speaking teachers are modeling English to their students. But modeling English through their own use is not the same as actually actively teaching them the language. And so there's maybe some incidental teaching of language, particularly, you know, in lower down in early years and in primary school, teachers do tend to spend time on language development, on vocabulary, on things like that, because all of the kids in the class need it. But the older the children are, the more it becomes just accepted that, oh, they're all fine in English now, that they can all read and write, we don't need to worry about it. And it's at that point that it becomes more critical for teachers to actually be teachers of language in their subject so that the geography teacher is looking at their units and going, these words are really important. These structures are really important. We're going to model them and practice them. And that doesn't happen very often because teachers don't have the training to make it so. So if you say all teachers are teachers of language, you're presuming that they have the knowledge about how the English works and the pedagogical skills to transmit that. And that's a whole degree in and of itself. And so you know, just because I can do math to a certain extent doesn't mean I could teach it. Just because I can do English doesn't mean I can teach it. Yes, that's a really, really good point. Um, I've had several conversations with parents who have been advised by teachers or healthcare professionals to stop speaking their home language with their children once they start school. And that's either because they are trying to speed up the process of their children learning English or to prevent them from being confused in inverted commas. So why should parents take this particular advice with a pinch of salt? I don't know a pinch of salt, it's the gallon of salt for that one. I think it's, it, it's the most common bad advice that bilingual parents get. And it's based on something that seems factually accurate. Your child needs to learn English, more English will help them learn English more quickly. That sounds really logical, and so that's the advice a lot of teachers give. Actually, what we know about language acquisition for school-aged children is that the better their own language is, the better they will learn English. So if you think about it as a stack of blocks, if the bottom of the stack of blocks is solid and well-built, you can keep building on top of it. But if the bottom of the stack is not well-built and weak, you try and build on top and it will fall over. And so the best advice for parents is, you keep speaking Russian at home and make sure your, your child is developing really well in Russian because the better their Russian is, the better they'll learn English. And it's hard to get that message through because it sounds completely counterproductive. But that is what the research very clearly shows, that the strength of the, their home language builds their ability to learn another language more quickly. So how long does it take, Eowyn, if a child is starting to learn English as a new language? How long does it take for them to get to grips with it? So again, that's it's really variable um, depending on the age they are when they start and the strength of their own language. But there, when we talk about kind of school language, we talk about two different kinds of language. The first is the everyday language. So just being able to chat to your friends, to have a conversation at lunch, to you know ask your teacher for a pen or pencil, that kind of basic communication. And that takes between one and three years to develop fully to an age appropriate level. The second kind of fluency we talk about is academic fluency. So that's the ability to describe or compare and contrast or evaluate or do all of those things that are language but that are connected to cognitive processing. And it takes kids between three and nine years to catch up to their native speaking peers 
in terms of their cognitive processing in English. And so one of the things that happens a lot is when people don't understand those windows, they, they misunderstand children's development. They say, oh, well, his English is fine now. He's been here two years. So it must be a learning disability issue or a SEN issue when actually it's just that window of ver variation and you know how long it takes a child between three and nine years depends on the strength of their own language, how well they're supported at school, how well they're supported at home, but also their own motivation, their own language aptitude. Some kids are really good language learners and some are not, just like adults. And so there's no one size fits all solution, but we need to be aware that for zero to up to nine years, some of what's going on in school for a child who's learning English is still to do with learning English and not to do with learning content. Nine years, that is, it's enormous, isn't it? That could be the whole of primary school and into secondary school. I don't think... It is I enormous. Think, I don't think people are remotely aware of that. They are, they are not remotely aware. And it also becomes problematic when you look at, you know, something like, you know, end of primary school exams. So, the, you know, the SATs here in the UK, if you have a child who arrived when they were seven, and they're writing those high stakes exams for four years later, there's still a huge impact on how they're using English on how they'll do on those exams. And so those exams are not measuring their ability. They're measuring their ability as impacted by their level of development in English. Wow. I, I'm really glad that you've made that so clear because I think it's a thing that all teachers should know if you've got an English language learner that, you know, how long they've been learning it um, could could have a huge effect on what they actually understand about the subject. Even in something like math, people say, oh, but it's math, it's numbers, but it's also language. And it goes back to one of the things we talked about in the first podcast, earlier is better. The earlier a child starts, so as a child who starts when they're four, is very likely to take longer to develop fully than a child who starts when they're 10. So in that, in this case specifically, earlier is not better because four-year-olds are just not as good at learning in general. Their cognitive development isn't as good. So it takes them longer to acquire a new language as well. It may seem to take them less time because to catch up to talk at a four-year-old level, you know, basic sentences and things isn't as problematic. But when you look at research on, on immersion schools, when children start in, at five years old or at 10 or 11 years old or at 12 years old, at the end, their level is almost all the same. So the kids who started when they were five were caught up by the kids who started when they were 12. So in that case, earlier is better actually is not true. It takes longer. Yes. So why does supporting the home language actually help children to learn English then? So it helps children to learn English because it, it, it ensures that they continue their cognitive development process. So, it, you know, if I speak, for example, only French to my children and they're fluent French speakers and then they go to school and everybody starts speaking to them in English, they don't understand anything. And if they don't understand what's going on, if they're not learning, they're not developing cognitively. Whereas if we keep speaking to them in French, they keep developing cognitively. And the more developed they are cognitively, the better they can learn English. And so it's like a hill and the strength of the home language is going to pull the English up the hill. It's also to do with how using the home language can scaffold understanding. So for example, if we're doing something complex in, I don't know, year five literature, and, and I make sure that the kids who are English language learners understand the concept in their own language first, that understanding transfers to English. So then they understand the content in English better 
and then they can learn English better as well. So it's also how we activate the home language to support the learning of English, or in many cases in schools don't activate the home language. Yeah, so other than supporting the acquisition of English, actually encouraging parents to keep up with the home languages, you're saying that that helps develop their cognitive skills. Can you just make sure that everyone really understands what their cognitive skills are that we're talking about there? So when children are born, you know, kind of in terms of their brain processing, they're not able to do very much. They don't, you know, they can't think or talk. They can think, but not, you know, they couldn't do a math problem. And so we kind of continue our cognitive development up to our teen years where we get better and better at thinking and we can handle abstract thought and then we can do maths and then we can do more complex math. So it's about how our brain works. And we have to continue being given kind of learning input to continue that development process. And so if a child doesn't understand what's happening at school, that is not helpful for them in their cognitive development because the teacher's putting lots of numbers up on the board with X's and things and they have no idea what's going on. So they're not developing their mathematical conceptual understanding. Whereas if we do that with them in their, you know, in their dominant language, their home language, they go, oh yeah, I understand what you're, and then they can start to develop that ability to do abstract mathematics. And so it's kind of hard to describe I usually use pictures with parents to describe it, to describe in words, but it's about the natural development that happens as children gets older, get older, that allows them to be better thinkers. And we can't interrupt that without having a negative effect on their development. Okay, thank you. Just to make sure people really understand that if you stop speaking the home language and the child does not have, you know, nine years experience already of English to the same, you know, kind of level of fluency, they may actually not develop the math skills or not develop the critical thinking skills that are an age appropriate level for them. So absolutely. And when you look at research that focuses on, you know, bilingual children don't do well in school, very often what it's focusing on is children who aren't successfully bilingual. So they've lost their home language to a large extent and the school language didn't develop properly. So they haven't got a language that they can really use to do those deeper level kinds of concepts. And that's the real risk in advising parents to stop using the home language is that you will also impact their cognitive development. So how can teachers support parents to keep educating their children in the home languages, even when the teacher is not a speaker of those languages? So there are lots of things um, that teachers can do. Well, the first and foremost is to encourage them to read to their kids in their own language. And if they, you know, if they're not literate or don't have books available to tell stories. So when the children take a little, you know, Oxford reading tree or reading book home or whatever it is, the parents should know very explicitly. The first thing you're going to do is tell the story to your child or with your child in your own language, ignore the English words. If, you, if you're not comfortable in English, it doesn't matter. Look at the pictures, tell the story. And then once they understand the story and are engaged with the story, then you can start looking at the English words and how we're going to decode those and how we're going to sound them out. So that's one way. Um, homework should be done in the home language as well. So if the kids are coming home and they need to do a project on my family, they should do that project on their family in their family language so that the parents are actively supporting the continued development of the home language. Um, in terms of how you make that you know, kind of attractive or acceptable to kids, 
schools should be doing things like having home language story times where they bring in parents who speak different languages to do stories for all the kids, not only the kids who speak that language. Um, grouping children by home languages for lunch sometimes so they can play together with older children making home language study groups so that they can talk to each other in their own languages while they're doing their homework. There are lots of things that kids that schools can be doing even if they don't speak the languages of the children. That's brilliant advice. Thank you so much. Is there ever a case for parents to drop a home language when told to by professionals? So say if they've got a special educational need or a suspected speech delay, for example. The short answer is no. It can be slightly more complex than that. But being bilingual never causes a child to have a speech or language impairment or a special educational need. And I don't say never very often, but it literally never causes a child to have one of those issues. Bilingual children can have speech or language impairments or special educational needs, but it's not because they're bilingual. Very often the advice is to stop using the home language to focus on English because English is the language of therapy. Um, but again, you're risking then stopping development in the language the child is strongest in, and that's gonna have a negative impact. And so the choice to stop a home language would almost never be the right choice. Very, very rarely, if for example, the child has parents who speak two different languages, and there's one of those languages that isn't used very often, you could theoretically stop using that language without impacting the child. But then you need to think about what's the impact on their identity development, their connection to their family and their community. So if dropping that language means they can never talk to their grandparents again, still not the right thing to do. When we look at kind of the body of research on children who have special educational needs or speech and language delays, all of the evidence we have shows that they can become bilingual given the right support. So for example, research on children with Down syndrome shows that they can develop in two languages to the same level as would be expected in one language. So there, that's not a quick fix and it very often will do more harm than good. Thank you. That was a really clear answer. And I think it needs to be shouted loudly that, you know, these children, if they have a special educational need or a speech delay, it is not because they are bilingual. That's one of the most common things parents come up against. And very often, again, it goes back to not understanding bilingual development. So, for example, when my twins were little, we would go to the baby, you know, the well baby clinic and at their 18 month appointment, the nurse said, oh, how many words do they have? And so I said, for example, 10 in English, 10 in French, 10 in Dutch. And she got all concerned. Oh, only 10 words. Well, that wasn't 10 words. That was 30 words. But if you're thinking through a monolingual lens, you're presuming they have the same 10 words in each language. So it's only 10, but they had different 10 words in each language. And so when we measure bilingual children or multilingual children by a monolingual standard, they're often seen to be deficient where they aren't. So if somebody sends your, um, let's say Portuguese English bilingual child for a speech assessment when they're three years old, if they only assess in English, they're not getting the whole picture. So they may assess your child as being delayed when in fact they're not. And so sometimes those diagnoses are based on an incorrect assessment. Sometimes a child may actually have a speech or language delay, that's perfectly possible, but dropping the language is more likely to do harm than good. I've heard of some schools, Erwin, that ban children from speaking in the home languages with other children in the playground and more often in the classroom. 
So what are the ramifications of this kind of language policing approach? Okay, so there are two different areas of ramifications to those kinds of policies. The first is to do with their language development, and the second is more to do with their identity development. Um, and you know, the, the first thing that we need to consider is if you're a child who doesn't speak the school language, so if you're going to school in England, you don't speak English, but there is somebody on the playground who speaks your language, those 15 minutes of break are going to be the only time in the day when you get a break and just get to say what you want to say. And so we're taking away from kids the opportunity to have a little mental break, have some fun and connect with somebody. And that's really problematic on lots of levels. Um, and you, you know, you could use the analogy of when, you know, when British tourists go abroad, they gravitate towards other groups of British people and they all speak English. Why? Because that's what feels comfortable. We all, even adults, will switch to our most comfortable language given the choice. And so if we do it as adults, we should let children do it too. Otherwise, we're just essentially being punitive to them in ways that we aren't to ourselves. The second issue has to do with, you know, how they feel about their own bilingualism. When you tell, their, you tell children their own language is wrong or not acceptable in a school situation, they're less likely to want to continue to use that language. And that's where you have children starting to refuse to speak it, um, which can, you know, impacts their family, impacts, can impact their development, can impact their, their development in English as well. And so it's, it's pretty far reaching and it's really just cruel to not let kids use their own languages sometimes in the school day to be able to be who they really are. I think perhaps there's just a fear, isn't there, that they're saying something that the teachers can't control. And actually, maybe we need to just let children, you know, have the benefit of the doubt that they're probably just trying to talk about football or the cards they're collecting or any other thing. It's not necessarily that they're saying something um, underhand is it at all. It is. And I, I mean, I call that the monolingual paranoia. If you're using a language I don't know, you must be using it to talk about me. When you're right, they're probably just talking about Pokemon or whatever they're interested in. But, you know, there's definitely a tendency that we see in schools that if you make children's languages unwelcome and illicit, they will use them in unwelcome and illicit ways. If you embrace their languages and make them something positive, they'll use them in positive ways. Um, and I think that, you know, that that aligns with children in general. If you tell them something's bad and they shouldn't do it, they're going to try and do it behind your back. And so it's about how we moderate their languages for good rather than trying to stamp out a really important aspect of a child's identity. Thank you. Now, that brings us on to translanguaging, I think. So what is translanguaging and why is it important for teachers to know about it? So translanguaging has lots of other kind of different terms. We talk about code mixing and code meshing and uh, and, and basically it's just accepting that people who are bilingual use their languages together in lots of productive ways in their brain. And that if we can harness that, we can make it work for children rather than working against. So that's, for example, the, the example I gave with the parents reading the story first in their own language and then reading it with the child in English. That's an example of translanguaging where you work through the same activity, different parts of it in different languages to scaffold both meaning and language. And so teachers can use it in all kinds of ways to help kids do you know, research in their stronger language or to write first in their stronger language and then write into English. But it's just a method that acknowledges 
that cutting off everything a child knows in one language is inefficient and ineffective and makes the children feel bad about themselves finding ways to tap into what they know and can do in other languages is really productive in terms of their learning in school and their development in English. Yes, I like the idea that you could do research, say you're doing the frog life cycle or something. You know, you can learn all about frogs in your home language, can't you, and have really interesting conversations and then, you know, bring that knowledge with you because the knowledge is separate from what language you learned it in, isn't it? It's kind of um, what you were saying about the cognitive development, you could perhaps have really high level thoughts about frog life cycles in one language, but your level of English shouldn't impede your ability to think about frog life cycles. Absolutely. And so when we limit children to only doing things in English when they're still learning English, we essentially limit what they learn. And you're absolutely right. If I understand something conceptually in one language, I don't need to learn it again in English. I just need to learn the words. So Jim Cummins always uses the example of telling time. If I can tell time in Gaelic, all I need to do to be able to tell time in English is learn the words to go along with it. I don't need to learn the concept again. And so for children who can't get to the content in English yet, going through their own language is the most effective way to make sure they're learning, but then also they can learn English more effectively because they're putting the words onto something they already understand rather than just learning words in a vacuum that they don't know what they mean. Absolutely. And it's this idea of networks rather than a fixed space model. And Thomas Back has talked about that on the podcast that we had this old way of looking at the brain, like it was a chest of drawers with a limited resource of space, whereas actually a network is a more accurate sort of description for the brain, isn't it? So if you've understood the concept of time and how to tell time, then learning it in two or three languages isn't kind of, you know, um, having to go over the same ground on the concepts, is it? It's just learning new words to signify it. So that actually the more links that you have in the net, the stronger the net is. Absolutely. And I think we really... We, you know, we devalue children's learning when we don't um, embrace those kinds of pedagogies. So when a school truly embraces multilingualism and celebrates all of the children's languages, let's finish off thinking about how this could, how this could be. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, those nice sort of twinkle speech bubbles around the entrance where you've got 60 languages, um, you know, for welcome. I'm talking about, you know, what we're talking about here, like the translanguaging, perhaps embedding a real ethos of multilingualism into your into your school. How can schools, how can they imagine themselves into this sort of multilingual approach? So I think that, um, you know, the, the, the first thing to do is to look at the whole school as a school of language learners. We all want kids to have access to more than a one language, whether they already do or whether they don't yet. And so if we think about us all together as language learners, what are the resources we have for language learning? So, um, you know, so-and-so speaks Punjabi, so they're going to teach us some Punjabi and we're going to play a game. So-and-so speaks Polish, so they're going to tell us, you know, a poem in Polish. We're all going to bring in poems in our own languages and explain them to the class in English. All of these ways that allow kids to tap into their own languages, but that also allow the monolingual kids to learn about languages and to learn bits of languages from their peers where they'll be more motivated 
and where they can see, for example, the payoff. So if I learn to play this really cool game in Punjabi, that's something I can actually do with people that I know at my school. One of the things I find really frustrating, not just here in the UK, but kind of globally, is the tendency to teach languages in schools. We say everybody needs to learn a language from primary school. Why is everybody learning French? Why are they not learning the languages of the community around them so they can go into the corner store and use that language to say, hi, how are you doing? And so again, it's about the status we apply to certain languages, whether high or low influences whether we think there's value in using it. But I know of schools in England who have embraced this approach and, and it's ended up having a really positive impact on all of the kids, even the monolingual kids who become language learners through the process of languages they can use in their community. And so you're right, it's not about a superficial, what I call foods, flags, and festivals. It's about really thinking about language as an integral part of the identity of our children in our school. And like anything else to do with identity, we talk about it, we embrace it, we learn together from it. I like that. Foods, flags and festivals. Yes, that's very superficial, isn't it? Even if it can feel it can feel busy and productive. But actually, when you're talking about identity, it's a much deeper thing, isn't it? Much. So if a school is listening, a teacher, head teacher or anyone who would like support with their kind of growing numbers of multilingual pupils or even if it's a school where there are no multilingual pupils, because I know that in the UK, you, you know, we have schools where everybody speaks English. And in fact, I grew up in a very rural part of the UK and I didn't meet anybody who spoke another language or at least it was hidden, like you described, you know, that somebody's dad was German, but, you know, that was never talked about. So there are lots of different types of schools here. Where can schools come to for support with English as an additional language? So um, the subject association for EAL is called VALDIC, which is the National Association for Language Development in the Curriculum, which rolls off the tongue. And the, the NALDIC website has resources that you can access. There's a great journal. There's a really good blog. And the blog has a lot of teacher practice reports. So teachers who are writing themselves about things they do in schools. So that's one good place to go. And then through NALDIC, there are different regional interest groups and the regional interest groups will have kind of termly meetings on different focus points. That's obviously changing right now. We had the first Oxfordshire one um, virtually in May, I think. But certainly through the EAL journal blog, there's quite robust information and through the journal itself. Um, in terms of um, teaching languages in school for those monolingual schools, the Ripple Network has really good information about uh, you know, more innovative or interesting ways to teach languages. Uh, Twitter is great. There are all kinds of groups of people on Twitter who are sharing uh, good practice um, and resources and things like that. And kind of off the top of my head, those are the places that would be easiest for teachers to find and to find um, kind of things that they can get their hands on and do right away. Lovely, thank you. I'll make sure I link to all of these in the blog that goes with the podcast so teachers if you're listening then come to the blog and you can see where to find it so to sum up then Eowyn teachers and parents can work together to support children who are being educated in more than one language and it actually improves the outcomes for all the pupils and the community of the whole school so if parents or teachers would like more support from you personally Eowyn where can they find you well that's a good question they can find me in far too many places <laughs> Um, for teachers who are interested in doing some formal learning, 
Um, at Oxford Brookes University, we run a postgraduate certificate in teaching multilingual learners. It's a one-year distance program, and that's you know for teachers who work in multilingual contexts and really want to get some more robust background. That's a really pro good program to do. Um, for schools who are just kind of interested in my blog for teachers, they can find me at my professional website, and parents can find me at my parent website, which is on raising bilingual children, um, and that's been up for quite a few years and has quite a lot of content on particularly on topics we've already talked about today. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Eowyn. It's been a really fascinating discussion. and I hope. Thank I hope, you very much for having me. I hope to meet you again in real life and carry on the discussion offline too. Thank you very much, Kate. Thank you. Bye-bye.